welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Valentine. I keep wanting to say happy Halloween. Uh, whatever, it's October. Happy Halloween. Um, couple announcements. We have the October Sober Fest happening next weekend in Trout Lake, Washington. Gary Sanders is speaking. Looks like they will have Recovery Dharma, 12-step, and 8-step recovery things happening, as well as music, meditation, and a BBQ. Uh, To find out more information about that, you can go to BuddhistRecovery.org, Meetings and Events, and then click Buddhist Recovery Events. And it looks like that is taking place uh, all weekend, so that's the weekend of October 25th. And that is October Soberfest. And then in December, a recovery-focused meditation retreat is happening near Vancouver, BC. It's going to be a weekend retreat, so just a couple days, which is perfect if you haven't been to a meditation retreat before and you just want to try one out. Or if you don't have a full 10 days or 7 days or 6 days to take off, but you could, you know, manage a a three-day meditation retreat. It's going to be led by Vimala Sara and Brian Dean Williams. Um, I went last year and it was full of wonderful meditations, deep Buddhist philosophy, group shares, so- socialization, and laughter. This year the theme is the joy of recovery. Uh, it's going to be December 13th through the 15th. To find out more information and to register, go to VancouverBuddhistCenter.com. I believe it's .com. Yes, VancouverBuddhistCenter.com. If you have any announcements you want or events happening you want announced on the podcast, please let us know. Um, my recovery has benefited greatly from hearing about events and having stuff to go to and a place where I can make friends and focus on recovery and gain wisdom and meet teachers. So if you know of anything or you're putting an event on anywhere in the world, really, uh, let us know and we can list it on the BuddhistRecovery.org site and announce it on the podcast. Okay, without further ado... Vince Cullen on what the Buddhist suttas offer about addiction. I um, I would like to introduce a really good friend to the Buddhist Recovery Network, an original uh, OG member. Um, I think he came from the farthest away, um, uh, from uh, Ireland himself, and. Um, uh, Vince, we are sorry that we ran out of time this morning, uh, but we're really looking forward to your um, talk about uh, the Buddha and uh, recovery. Thank you. It's a very, it's a very strange experience standing up here. Um, when I I saw Barbara West on Friday evening and. Um, she came down to the steps and I gave her a hug and she, and she sort of said, you've come a long way. And I didn't think, oh yeah, I've come from Tipperary via Los Angeles, via Vancouver and back here, and Olympia back to here. Yeah, in 23 years I have come an awful long way. <laughs> uh, you know, I can't believe just how much my world opened up as soon as I stopped doing that which was damaging me and those around me. I c- it's, it's inconceivable how my life has opened up. So thank you for prompting me on that, Barbara. Um, I've been worrying about this talk for months and months to the point where I skipped meditation yesterday morning and this morning just to try and finish it up, just to try and have some sense out of this. And this is all part of being human, this need to be perfect, this need to uh, to have status, to be accepted, it's just part of, of human, what the Buddha would call um, inclinations, intoxicating inclinations. So it's rather handy that the whole morning's got disrupted, 
it's broken up my train of, of thought and my, my anxieties, but I'm, you know, I'll, I'll try and relax and calm down. I'm always much better if, if I skip the script, but I've got to have the script there for some um, protection. Um, so I, I like to start, and I really would like to start this morning, just by um, welcoming you. And as I did uh, at the last summit two years ago, and as I do at most of my retreats when I open them, is I like to offer a blessing, a blessing from me to you. And it's a blessing that's used in Sri Lanka for hundreds of years, in fact, more likely uh, two, two millennia, 2,000 years or, plus or more. The monks in Sri Lanka, they get up in the morning, they put on full robes, they go into little villages and towns, they stand on the corners. And as people put something in their bowl, they offer a blessing. They have a whole catalogue of blessings. You can imagine they built up over 2,000 years, a whole catalogue of these blessings. And this is a, a mudita blessing uh, that one of my teachers translated, and it goes like this. How wonderful you are in your being, and I delight that you are here. I take joy in your good fortune, and may your happiness continue and increase. Thank you. <coughs> So I don't know whether I'm going to get through my whole presentation. I haven't timed it. If, uh, if I run short of time, uh, I'm sure Kevin will let me spill over a little bit. And if I haven't got enough material, then we'll go to lunch early or earlier. <coughs> so welcome to this first session in what has been entitled What the Buddhist Suttas Have to Teach Us About Addiction and Recovery. Um, but before I, I talk about and we might explore uh, what the Buddha termed as intoxicating inclinations, uh, the cra our cravings for sensual pleasure, our cravings for resistance, our cravings, our inclination towards um, ignorance, um, not just in what we don't know, but in also in what we don't want to know or refuse to know. Um, our addictions to everything, and the Buddha, the Buddha touches on them all, music, food, sex, gambling, alcohol, Addiction to our bodies, addiction to uh, um, intoxication, intoxicants, uh, addiction to our appearance, uh, addiction to our views and opinions, and addiction to our notion of self, this fixed, solid, unchanging self. But let's have just a brief meditation, just to arrive, just, just two minutes, just to arrive in this room, come back into this room. Literally just two minutes to come into our bodies, take a deep breath, connect with, uh, connect with this present moment. Arjun Chah, the great Thai forest teacher, he would suggest we start meditation by completely emptying our lungs of all our then taking a very deep in-breath, full deep in-breath, and a very long, slow out-breath, and just feeling the breath in the whole body. And perhaps one more time, completely emptying there from our lungs, and then taking a very full deep breath in. And then that very long, slow, deliberate breath out. Just feeling the breath in the whole body. And then just letting the breath settle down. And for the next minute, just enjoy the breath. Enjoy each and every breath. I have a limited number of breaths before I take my last breath. And each breath is worthy of my attention.
I'm not sure whether this is supposed to be a Dharma talk or a, um, a presentation as such. Um, I'll try and steer in the middle. But I, I, I did, I found the previous um, session this morning extremely useful. Um, just in seeing how pervasive these intoxicating inclinations are. Um, and I, I did get up to make a point at, at, at one time, particularly around um, internet addic addiction, because we are pre-programmed to... Um, well, let, let's start with rats. Do you know that rats are neophobic? Rats don't like new things. New things are a bit dangerous. <coughs> But as human beings, we're actually pre-programmed to seek out new things. We crave stimulation. We crave excitement. We crave novelty. And advertisers know this. The founders of Facebook know this. That we seek novelty. We seek excitement. We seek stimulation. They're fully aware. Um, but that's just its natural. It's, these are natural inclinations. And in many ways, they're totally impersonal. And if there's one thing on my path recently that's really sitting well with me, is the impersonal nature of craving. That so much of it is pre-programmed, these nat natural inclinations. But the Buddha warns us, you know, these natural, inclination, natural inclinations become intoxicating inclinations. So I'm, I'm, I've tried not to be too dry with this, um, but e equally, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the there was nothing at the Buddha's time that that was taboo as such. You know, the opening rule for monks is that if you have sex, if you have intercourse with a female, even with a female animal, then you're expelled. Now, why would you need to make that the very first rule in the monk's rule book? <laughs> Absolutely astounding. And, you know, I could fill the whole 45 minutes talking about the monks and what they got up to sexually. Um, <laughs> some, of, some of the commentary is, is quite bizarre because the, an offence wasn't an offence until someone did it the first time. So every time the Buddha kept saying, no, you can't do that, Oh, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. And people just got more inventive and more inventive. <laughs> and it, it went to extremes. Uh, and I say I won't go into too much detail, but perhaps I'll just, uh, just as a, an illustration. Um, if a monk were to have sex with a dead corpse, he's expelled. Or, sorry, a recently dead corpse. <laughs> he's expelled. If a monk has sex with a very badly decayed corpse, he's just reprimanded because he, he's surely not in his own head. <laughs> so there's this distinction in the rules. And as a, it, it gets worse. It gets, but I'm not, I'm not going to go down that route. <coughs> so my, my, my name is Vince Cullen. I'm, I'm, I'm currently a recovered alcoholic. But, you know, I think I, I'm currently, I would describe myself as a recovered alcoholic, but of course everything changes. Our schedule changes, I change. Um, I, I consider myself a great, well, not sure about great, but a, an unfinished self. And even at the age of 62, I'm a work in progress. So I'm not finished. Um, Sort of expanding on what I said to Barbara yesterday about you know taking it's taken taken me 23 years to get here. Um, I, what I used to do when I was drinking, I would um, I'd often find myself in a place called Southend on Sea, on, on the coast of uh, Essex in the UK. I didn't live there. I lived 50 miles from there. But so often I got on the train from Central London in an intoxicated state, and so often I woke up in Southend on Sea, miles from where I live. And then dazed and confused, I'd ask myself, how did I find myself back here again? Again. But it's lovely, after 23 years, to find myself in Lacey. And for the second time as well. As I mentioned last night, for those of you 
who were here um, nearly 23 years ago. I sat in my kitchen in Newbury in Berkshire. I was at a very low point. Um, I'd had some rock bottoms before, but this was my lowest rock bottom. And I, I deliberately took a can of lager out of the cupboard, poured it into a glass, and I resolved that that would be my last drink ever. And I also resolved that I wouldn't switch addictions. And um, I'm very pleased to say that, uh, that that's held for 23 years now. Um, but the first two years of, of my sobriety were miserable. They were what the Buddha would describe as, as living in the plains of misery, very much living in the unhappy ghost realm, very much living in the, the sub-realm of that, the, the unhappy, the uh, hungry ghost realm. But then I started, uh, after two years, I started to dip my toe tentatively into the, this this um, this wealth of, of Dharma, of Buddhism and Dharma. And I finally started to make sense of my life, a life that was driven and overwhelmed by what the Buddha called intoxicating inclinations. The cravings for sensual pleasure, the cravings for existence, the cravings toward ignorance. Um, and sometimes he adds a, a, a fourth inclination in there, the craving towards holding on to views. And certainly in terms of ignorance, this, this simply, it wasn't simply that I didn't know, ignorance in the sense of I didn't know, but ignorance in the sense of I really didn't, hadn't wanted to know up until that point. I have, on a, I don't particularly have a line, a lineage or a lineage. Uh, I was lucky enough to talk for, speak for London Insight uh, earlier this year and, and they must have forgotten something on the checklist because when I got there they said to me oh our trustees were just wondering um, do you have any credentials <laughs> it's a bit late to ask now and now I'm here now I'd, um, I think they went okay they've asked me back but I have you know on occasion taken I've taken temporary ordination in, uh, as a monk in Thailand which is very common temporary ordination is very common in Thailand it's it's what you do you're not considered ripe you're not con considered fit to marry until you've ordained at least once. Um, so I've taken temporary ordination um, a couple of times. Uh, and so my sort of my home monastery as such would be this vomiting monastery in Thailand, this uh, detox temple, Wat Tam Krabok, uh, very um, unique both in Thailand and in the rest of the world, uh, but also unique in their teachings as well. Um, back in 2009, at the very first... Um, um, Buddhist Recovery Conference in, uh, against the stream in, in Los Angeles. Um, after, after that, I went, came along to that conference and was quite inspired, very inspired by it. And I went home to England, and in that was October, in November 2009, I started uh, a recovery group in uh, in my hometown, uh, offering uh, sit and share meetings, sit and share recovery meetings, and I called the group Fifth Precept Sangha. And it's still going now. There's a couple of groups running around the world. There's an online group that happens on a Monday. Pretty small fry compared to what's available now. I mean, I'm just knocked out on how well um, uh, recovery dharma's doing. Uh, it's wonderful to see. I like to make the point about truth and truthfulness. And, and the Buddha... Um, was very keen to preserve the truth. Um, and on one occasion he was um, confronted by a young Brahmin. Um, Brahminism was the Dominic, do, was the dominant uh, religion at the time. Uh, and the young Brahmin came along and said to the Buddha, um, he wanted the Buddha to, to validate that the Brahmanic teachings um, were true and only those Brahmanic teachings were true, everything else was silly, worthless and false. And the Buddha, as he so often did, turns it all around and he actually asks the young man, well, can you or anyone who's alive today or any Brahmin going back seven generations or even the authors of the Brahmanic test, can any of you say, I see this, I know this, this is true, only this is true, everything else is false, silly, not true. And the young Brahmin had to admit, no, he couldn't. And the point the Buddha was trying to make is, it has to be your own experience. And you just can't take it 
on what someone else is because it's been written down for so long you just can't take it on, on face value so he was very keen to preserve the truth in the sense of a personal truth so I would just like to emphasize before I've even started my talk ten minutes into it that um, that what I'm offering here is just my views and opinions and my views and opinions are not necessarily the truth they are subject to change um, but it's what uh, it's how I've you know this this um, faculty of curiosity that, that um, Alex alluded to this morning you know we do have a curiosity uh, and we can bring uh, this affectionate uh, curiosity to our practice and and, and, and to life to, to the truth of reality okay so the title of this talk is what the Buddhist sutras have to teach us about addiction and recovery and if time permitting I'd like to break it down into a, a couple of chunks first of all to quite quickly take a look at what the Buddhist sutras are and then to offer some definitions of what addiction was then and what it is now to perhaps explore addiction from um, the Buddhist perspective and a clinical perspective but with reference to a couple of specific suitors that you've all got handouts on and then just to summarize it and hopefully bring it all, to, all together now I obviously don't want to touch my uh, to teach or touch my grandmother I don't want to touch I don't want to teach my grandmother to suck eggs but for the benefit of those individuals here today who are new to these teachings and what we call the Dharma then I'll start at the beginning and what are the Buddhist suttas in the title of this talk? Well, they're, they're, they're literally the talks that the Buddha gave. Uh, as he wandered around northern India, he would stop and he would give a talk and someone would remember it. And then between um, the group of monks would recite that talk and, rem and memorize it. Um, it's worth us remembering now that, the, you know, that we keep banding around this word mindfulness. But the, the, the root meaning of mindfulness, it comes from, uh, the Pali word is sati, the, um, the Sanskrit word is smirti. And, and the root meaning of that word is to remember something you've heard. To remember something you heard, because nothing was written down. So if you wanted to remember something, you, you, know, you had to remember. You, um, and I, I'll often refer to mindfulness as remembering to remember. And what's what's where the skill and wisdom comes in is what do I need to remember in this this moment in time? Um, so these talks were given by the Buddha. They were given by some of his senior monks uh, and other monks, and and some there are lots of recorded talks from from nuns as well. The talks are called suttas or suttas or sutras, which literally means a thread or a stitch. And there are collections of talks, some for monks, some for uh, general education, and some for sort of higher dharma, more uh, investigative dharma. So um, these three collections together are known as the Tipitaka or Tripitaka. Translates as three, as three baskets, the monastic discipline, the monastic code. Um, this, the book of um, suitor or the collection of suitors in, in various sub collections and then the Abhidharma uh, which is these um, elaborate doctrines um, uh, sometimes called a systematic philosophy of Buddhism so far so good so as I said the, the Buddha's talks were originally recorded orally that is every talk he, the Buddha gave was memorized and passed on by word of mouth by recitation um, the word so in terms of an orally orally transmitted tradition you know the, the word sati or uh, uh, smirti as from as re recollecting something remember something becomes very very important um, So these were, in one in one sense, these were a form of early podcasts, you know. And there were groups of monks that would memorise the short shorter talks, and groups of monks who memorised the longer talks. And when they went off wandering around northern India, you know, they'd get to a village and say, "What do you want, the long version or the short version?" Now there are some essential Pali words 
and you've heard one of them already uh, over the last couple of days, is the word dana for generosity. A generosity of thoughts, a generosity of words, a generosity of actions. And using the word dana is important because it gives that fuller meaning to generosity. You've heard me say tipitaka, sati, and sutta, three more Pali words. And Pali being the, the, the language that these very early texts were, were, talks were recorded in. And with your permission, I would like to use two or three more Pali words um, in my talk today because I, I believe that they're so important. The meaning that the Pali words convey exceeds any English translation. And there's a, there's a sort of parallel here that in, in clinical circles, when the DSM, um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, was updated, or is updated, it's, it's, you're only allowed to put new things in there if they, carry, if they convey meaning. Um, so a new scientific term or concept it has to be meaningful, non-redundant, and also of some practical value. And that's why I would like to introduce, in particular, some, part, some of these Pali words. But as far as humanly possible, I try not to. I try to keep it on a very non-scholastic uh, um, platform. Not, not that I'm a scholar um, in any shape or form. Um, but I, I do believe some of these words would convey a much deeper um, understanding what the Buddha was trying to get across to us. Um, there, for those of you that may have looked, there is a list of some words I use for, di I use for different purposes on page 40 of your Hungry Ghost book. You don't have to look at it now, but there's just some that I use during normal, um, um, normal retreats I run. Um, but in the event I use a word that, that hasn't been explained, please interrupt me, or uh, in fact, please interrupt me at any time. Uh, but bearing in mind that lunch is before one o'clock. Um, repeatedly in, in, or relatedly, and re, uh, in respect to my preparing for today's talk, I consulted numerous suttas and translations of suttas. So some of them I brought together. I've sort of mixed them up together to, to get a, to present a different or a better understanding of individual suttas. So so. Um, so some references I can give you as a specific translator, and some are a, a, a mix of translations. But I hope to give you a consensual view of what those suttas mean. So at that point, before we move on to addiction now, everyone comfortable? Okay, lovely. I was going to take the opportunity now to, to ask the audience what a definition of addiction, but time is not on our side, and maybe that might get deferred um, to this afternoon's workshop, particularly the question, is addiction a mental illness or, or a disease? According to the um, uh, NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, addiction is defined as a chronic relapsing brain disease that is characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use, despite the harmful consequences. NIDA further says that addiction can be considered both as a complex brain disorder and as a mental illness. But a less formal definition from, from 1990 um, says addiction might be a process whereby behavior that can function both to produce pleasure and to provide escape from internal discomfort is employed in a, a pattern characterized by recur recurrent failure to control that behavior powerlessness, and a, and a continuation of, of that behavior despite significant negative consequences, unmanageability. Now, not everyone agrees with that hard um, definition, clinical definition, definition of, of addictions, and um, a neuroscientist and professor by the name of Mark Lewis says that one of the greatest blows to the current notion of addiction as a disease is the fact that behavioral addictions can be just as severe as substance addictions, 
However, the party line at NIDA and the American Medical Association and the American Society of Addiction Medicine remains what it has been for decades, that addiction is primarily caused by substance abuse. But if that were so, how would you explain addictions to porn, sex, internet games, food and gambling? From Mark Lewis's perspective, then, addictions are based on learned behaviour. Now, 2,600 years ago, in the time of the Buddha, in, contra in contrast to current disagreements on the nature and origin of addictions, the Buddha was in no doubt. He saw our struggles with craving as both a learned behaviour and a mental disease. The Canadian addiction expert Gabor Maté says, in our culture, addiction is the norm. And similar, similarly, the Buddhist suttas do not distinguish between addicts and non-addicts. Everyone is subject to and suffers from continuous conscious or unconscious cravings. To a greater or lesser degree, everyone is suffering from some form of mental illness. And I find that hugely comforting. <laughs> hugely comforting. I used to crave to be normal. And thank goodness it doesn't exist. Um, in England, there's a joke about the, the little girl who asks her, her mum, you know, mum, what's normal? And mum says, well, it's a setting on the washing machine. And I, I, can, I really um, agree with that. And I, I, I love not being normal. I love having not normal friends. Uh, I don't know what normal is anymore, uh, and, and that's a good thing. But I, 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 So I love the, the idea that the Buddha gives that we're all suffering from mental illness. And as, a, as an example, maybe the first sutta on... Is it the first sutta on your handout? Ah, it is, yeah. Yeah. Would someone read that? I don't know if Mike would stretch that far. Monks, there are two kinds of illness. What two? Mental and physical. Some sentient beings are seen who can claim to be free of physical illness for a year or two or three years or four years or five years or 10, 20, 30, 40 or 50 years, even up to 100 years or more. But it's very hard to find any sentient beings in the world who can claim to be free of mental illness even for a moment apart from those who have overcome the intoxicating inclinations. Thank you very much. I find that so comforting. Um, um, and, I, and, and so important as well, this notion of intoxicating inclinations, um, which really are, are just natural inclinations and natural drives for community, for sex, for comfort, uh, for connection, that become warped. They become um, mal we they become maladaptive, um, and they don't they no longer serve us as a species. So these intoxicating inclinations of craving for sensual pleasure craving just to exist and the inclination towards ignorance towards not knowing and not wanting to know in one of the commentaries on, uh, on the, the Buddhist teachings um, the commentary says that anyone without a trained mind is mad and I, 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 I can really uh, um, feel with that as well and, and, and equally that, that makes me feel compassion for people who haven't had a, a glimpse into this reality. So from a modern perspective, addictions normally develop through wanting to feel a certain way, perhaps to be stimulated or to be numbed out, sometimes in response to boredom or discomfort, as an escape from our present moment experience. Uh, going back to Gabor Maté, the Canadian expert, uh, addiction expert, he says that most people are genuinely challenged by life's overwhelming stresses. So we try to tune out due to our mental trauma. He says, for example, that ADHD is a response to stress. As a slight aside, ADHD doesn't exist in France. 
why does ADHD exist here? But that's outside of the scope of this Dharma talk. So he, he sorry, yeah, indeed. <laughs> he goes on to say that trauma is not what happens to you, but how you react, disconnect, and change your view of the world. Contrary to our natural expectations as a child that all of our needs will be met, trauma brings mistrust, trauma brings fear, and trauma brings suspicion. Many current mental illnesses and addictions are deemed to be the result of maladaptive responses to the experience of trauma at some point in our lives. As part of this research in today's talk, I read a, uh, an article on a mental health website that said that traumatic events are common and most people will experience at least one traumatic event in their lives. And perhaps we should remember here that even the Buddha suffered a, a traumatic uh, experience in his early childhood in that he lost his own mother shortly after his birth so he never knew his birth mother and in one particular sutta the, the Buddha spends a bit of time um, or at least he gives the impression that he spent a lot of time contemplating the nature of impermanence and how we place our, our happiness in things that don't last in things that are subject to birth sickness, old age and death and he doesn't allude to whether he was thinking of his mother, his own mother at the time, but it was obviously a big concern to him. It was one of the things that, that prompted him to, to take up the homeless life. Now, amongst a group of Buddhists, I should be able to ask this question. What is the Buddha's first noble truth? Can any the truth of dukkha it is the truth of dukkha now this monks is the truth of dukkha birth is dukkha aging is dukkha sick illness is dukkha death is dukkha sorrow lamentation pain grief and despair are dukkha the being with what is displeasing is dukkha separation from what is pleasing is dukkha not getting what one wants is dukkha in brief, the five clinging aggregates, subject to clinging, are dukkha. So this word dukkha, this word that we, we so commonly translate as suffering or sometimes stress, it, it carries so much more meaning if we, if, we make, if we use the original word dukkha. It means a dirty hole, it means a rough ride. It was originally the, the, the hole in an axle that would be um, dirty and get a stone in it and it would give you a rough bumpy ride and life is a rough bumpy ride but it goes so much beyond that <coughs> life is stressful life is uncomfortable life is uncertain life is insecure life is disappointing life is painful life is complicated it's boring it's impersonal it's difficult it's distressing it's challenging life is unfair and I've really found this out personally lately life is very unfair life is incapable of providing any long-lasting satisfaction about apart from of course if you become enlightened um, life just isn't, isn't just stressful but in many ways it's inherently traumatic Inherent life, it's just being human, is traumatic. In terms of childhood trauma, as I've said, perhaps we should remember that Buddha never knew his birth mother. And it, it was his interest in the implications of impermanence that was a major factor in, in his leaving home to become a wandering ascetic. So life does not live up to our expectations, yet we wake up every morning screaming to the world, make me happy. And it can't do it. And what about the second noble truth? Mm, yeah, I, I argue with that one sometimes. I have a dis dis disagreement with that. But the, sec the second noble truth is this other, such an important word in Buddhism, tanha, craving. And yet yeah, we, we, we can translate this, you know, that our suffering comes from our craving. But it's, it's, it's not like our suffering. It doesn't carry the same weight. As our suffering comes from tanha. Tanha is this 
unquenchable thirst, this sense of aridity. Uh, these Pali words, I'm told, from one of my teachers who is a Pali scholar, you know, they, they carry a texture. And tanha, tanha is dark and sticky. To suffer from tanha, this unquenchable craving, dark and sticky. Now this, monks, is the noble truth and of the origin of suffering. It is this tanha, this craving, this thirst, which leads to re-becoming, accompanied by the light and lust, seeking the light here and there, that is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for becoming, and craving for disbecoming. A craving for all sensual pleasures, pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant taste, pleasant touch, pleasant smells, pleasant thoughts. A craving for novelty, a craving for excitement, a craving for stimulation, a craving to be, a craving for status, a craving for nice clothes, and sometimes our craving for not becoming, for not being here, often a source of our addictions in terms of food addictions and substance addictions, in wanting to not be here, wanting to numb out from life. But this second noble truth, this truth of Samudhya, Samudhya um, for me, when I, I look at evolutionary psychology and natural selection, the two truths arise together. To be human is to crave. To crave is to be human. One doesn't cause the other. They, they co-arise. But that's a technical issue. You know. um, we are plagued almost by, by, by craving. So what the Buddha is saying with the second noble truth is that we cannot alter the first noble truth, but we can change our relationship and response to it. We practice, we can put out the three fires of craving. The fire of craving, the fire of aversion, the fire of confusion, these three, these three mental states that cloud the mind and lead to unwholesome, unskillful and un unhelpful actions. These three fires that keep us locked into our mental illness. During the Buddha's time, as well as being addicted to greed, hatred and delusion, in the sense of uh, 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 um, in the sense of being uh, powerless um, to control our, our current behavior, and in the sense of c continuation of such behavior despite negative consequences, the unmanageability of our behavior, people were noted to, to be addicted to, to their body, to food, to sex, to music, to alcohol, to gambling, addicted to their views, and addicted to, to their thinking. And, and his, the path he offers tries to address all of these addictions. But it was very practical and pragmatic in all the advice he offered to monks, nuns, and to lay people. He suggested that the root cause of all unnecessary suffering or dukkha was our failure to see reality clearly. We view ourselves, we view others, and we view the world around us through the distorted lens of ignorance, both in terms of not knowing and in terms of not wanting to know. Our suffering does not exist out there. Our suffering exists in our own minds. Hence, he encourages us to get to know our own minds, to understand how we cause suffering by our thoughts, by our words, and by our actions. The Buddha presented a view of our existence as being a, pro a process, an ever-changing process, impermanent, inconstant, uncertain, subject to pain, and completely impersonal. Do you know, I, sp I spent years trying to find someone, something to blame for my alcoholism. Um, absolute waste of time. Completely impersonal. My alcoholism, nothing to do with me. Might have been a long line of alcoholics, both sides of the family. Might have been genetic, genetic correspondence. Might have been a social correspondence. But it's impersonal. Who, what caused it doesn't matter. My response to it matters, but what caused it doesn't. Sorry, George, your hand went up. Oh, okay, for time.
let me just see if there's a natural break coming up here. There, yeah, okay, so just a page and a bit. So, this notion that the Buddha presents of, of our existence being a process, ever-changing, impermanent, inconstant, uncertain, subject to pain, and completely impersonal, brings me to another, to brings me to an important sutta in terms of recovery, and that is the Buddha's talk about two types of thinking. And I think that's the second reference on there. Would someone like to read the sutra on two types of thinking? Two kinds of thought. Monks, before my awakening, when I was still unawakened but intent on awakening, I thought, why don't I meditate by continually dividing my thoughts into two classes? So I assigned sensual, malicious, and cruel thoughts to one class, and I assigned thoughts of relinquishment, goodwill, and harmlessness to the second class. Whatever a monk frequently thinks about and considers becomes their heart's inclination. If they often think about and consider sensual thoughts, they've given up the thought of relinquishment to cultivate sensual thought. Their mind inclines to sensual thoughts. If they often think about and consider malicious thoughts, their mind inclines to malicious thoughts. If they often think about and consider cruel thoughts, their mind inclines to cruel thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. That's so important. Every retreat I teach, if there's one thing I want people to take away, it's that, that short paragraph. What our minds think and ponder become the inclination of our minds. Well, this sutra opens rather beautifully with whatever our heart inclines towards. Uh, it's just wonderful. And that's why it's so important in terms of recovery to know where your mind is. Are you inhabiting the hell realms? Are you inhabiting the heaven realms? Are you inhabiting the Brahma Vihara realms? So knowing where you are right here, right now, without judgment but with some discernment is so important and so whatever retreat it is recovery or otherwise just what your mind frequently thinks and ponders becomes the inclination of your mind one of my teachers the lovely Christina Feldman if you ever get a chance to to go on retreat Christina Feldman please you know I'd recommend it probably. but she reframes it she says um whatever the mind frequently thinks and ponders shapes the mind and the shape of your mind shapes your world. So important. Um, Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate says, suffering shapes, suffering misshapes, suffering distorts the healthy development of the human brain. He says, before the mind creates our world, our world creates our minds. And there was a lovely six-part document, six documentary uh, on public service TV and the BBC by Dr. David Engelman. And, and he said, life shapes our brain and our brain shapes our life. And I know that I can be sitting in the same dining room, sitting next to someone, has effectively sharing the same food, sharing the same experience. But they live in a different world to me. They live in a, live in a world full of fear and hatred and cruelty. And I live in a world that isn't full of fear, hatred and cruelty. At least that's my aspiration. Um, so, you know, the, the opening lines to the, the, the Dharmapada, these short sayings of the Buddha about, you know, with our mind we create our world. So, knowing where our mind is, knowing where we're residing, right here, right now, is so important. So, it's one o'clock, I think we should all be residing in the dining hall now. Um, but before we go, just to wrap up this morning, uh, I offered you the Sri Lankan blessing this morning, this, this lovely Mudita blessing. Um, perhaps now you'd, you'd offer it to yourselves because it's just so important. So would you put your hand over your heart and repeat after me, how wonderful I am in my being. I delight that I am here. I take joy in my good fortune. And may my happiness continue and increase. May my happiness continue and increase. 
Thanks everyone for listening. We'll close out today's episode with a dedication of merit from the Fifth Precept Sangha meeting format, which was developed by Vince Cullen. We dedicate the merits of this practice to all suffering addicts. May everyone be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May everyone enjoy happiness and the causes of happiness. Keep sitting and keep smiling. <laughs>